All right, we're in 2 Corinthians again. 2 Corinthians in chapter 12. We were here last week and we are rounding the final stretch in our study. We have been in this for some time. I didn't look back at when we started this, but it's probably been close to probably eight, nine months or, or more that we've been in Second uh, Corinthians. Um, it goes quickly, it seems like, but we've been looking at this from a different perspective. And the theme of this is stay in the fight. And we're getting down to the closing remarks of the Apostle as uh, he addresses the Corinthian church and he was had visited there twice uh, that he was hoping to come a third time uh, that had been rescheduled and as he writes this letter it's a letter really of um, it's an encouraging letter in many ways but it's also a letter where he defends himself and he defends his attitudes his heart his his motives all of that is seen and we've been going through this and looking at that and also coupled with the study in 1 Corinthians, uh, when you go through that, I mean, Paul addresses a very young church, a church that had not matured. It was a church that had a lot of sin problems, uh, had a lot of divisions and different things that were happening. And after Paul left, although he had spent 18 months there, uh, there were those that came in and they're called in the Bible Judaizers. And they would come in and bring in other teaching that was contrary to the gospel, uh, contrary to the freedom which is found in Christ and the freedom from sin, and actually brought in a cloak of bondage. It was uh, essentially bringing in a legalistic system that said, you're not saved only by grace, but also by works. And you had to be saved through these works. And there were those that came in, and their motives were displayed. Paul talks about that. Uh, they really had come to capture the minds and hearts of the Corinthians. And unfortunately, some had gone with them in that arena. And so Paul writes and he defends himself and he reminds us of some of those things. And so we're in these closing remarks. And if you want an outline, we're probably only going to cover point one tonight. Maybe we might get into part two. But it says... uh, Again, the closing remarks, and the first thing we see is where Paul actually comes out pretty strong, and he shames them, Uh, and then he warns them, and he doesn't just leave them that way, but later he encourages them, and that's this part of uh, chapter 12 down to the last verse in chapter 13, and so there's quite a a few verses. Some of it is uh, has been expanded on earlier, but we'll we'll look at it here tonight. We're just going to read a few verses, and then pause for our study and and continue on that. Paul writes, I have become a fool in boasting, and you have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds." For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. And uh, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we, we are grateful, grateful for your word. And as we open it up tonight, help us to just put it deep into our hearts. Help us to appreciate what we have before us in the scripture, uh, what we have here as a church and as a people, as believers fellowship, all that, Lord. We just thank you for the ministry that goes on and help us, again, more than anything, 
to appreciate our Savior and be thankful for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Paul comes to this section here, and as he begins, he uh, has, and it, it builds on the first section there, but he's basically having to defend himself as an apostle. Uh, it seems that the Judaizers had come in, and they had uh, turned around, and, and really probably from what we imply here, Paul's defending certain aspects of his apostleship. No doubt they came in, and they said, Oh, that Paul, he just caused a lot of problems. Oh, that Paul, he came along, and he's not a real apostle, you know. He wasn't with the twelve originally when Jesus chose them. And, and there were those little seeds of doubt that come in. Uh, and, and the devil's good about that. The devil's good both at trying to plant seeds of doubt in the individual believer, right? Uh, did God say, right, as he says in Genesis 3, you know, that's the first thing he you know, he begins with, he's always putting a little doubt, right? And um, that is the way he operates. He's like that. And he also uses others, sometimes his servants, whether they realize it or not, to come along and to cast doubt on the work of God. Uh, We saw that in the book of Nehemiah. Remember the people from Ono, right, that came and they tried to stop the work. And Nehemiah stood firm and realized they weren't going to go with those people. They were going to continue the work of rebuilding the wall. That was what God had called him to. And when Paul talks about this, what we're seeing here is a calling that was on his life, a calling that we looked at last week when we looked in the book of Acts, when Paul was commissioned as an apostle. And he was specifically commissioned as an apostle that would go and bear his name among the Gentiles, bear the Lord's name among the Gentiles. Yet he was not limited to the Gentiles. Everywhere he went, he also, well, first of all, had a great burden for his own countrymen, his own people, the Jews. And he also spoke with them. You know, several times you see him in the synagogue and he's reaching uh, or at least dialoguing, and, and that's what we see in Acts 17. He's in the synagogue in Thessalonica, and he's, he's opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, and you know, explains there all those things that he presented. And that was Paul's manner of life. That was his habit. It was no different when he went to Corinth. The Corinthian church was a little different. Uh, it would have been mixed, uh, made up of probably more Gentiles, uh, had lots of Jews. The, some of the first converts there were Jews, and... You, you see that. When Paul reminds them of their, the ministry that he had with them, he starts off and he's being uh, sarcastic. Now, I understand that some say you can't be sarcastic and be a Christian, right? But he's, I, I call it a little holy sarcasm, okay? And there is such a thing. Because he's using the imagery of someone who's being a fool, right? Someone who's not, uh, hasn't... Um, he has to boast about himself and those kind of things. And he's driving home a more important spiritual point. Here, instead of the Corinthian church realizing that they had an apostle of Christ with them and among them, teaching them, who had helped to found that church, they instead were turning to others who were now you know, removed from the foundation that was there. And... Uh, he says, have I become a fool in boasting? All right? And he wasn't being foolish in boasting. He was defending his reputation. He was defending his calling. But he says, you have compelled me. They forced him to do that. 
And, you know, when, that's a hard thing for someone. And we, we know from the character of Paul as written by, about him, he was a humble man. He was what he was by the grace of God. He called himself the chief, chiefest of sinners and the least of all saints. And that was his, his manner, all right? Everywhere he went, we see Paul in humility. And here he is forced into a corner and having to, to tell them, no, this is what I am. I was sincere among you. My ministry was, was true. My intentions were there. And I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he sort of pulls rank. Uh, and every now and again, you've got to do that, you know. Uh, and I mean that in the, in the sense that um, I think leadership in general works best as the approach from Scripture, which is servant leadership, that we should be, always be willing as a leader in a church or wherever to be able to be at the front of whatever is happening, but leading as servants, not leading as dictators, right? But every now and again, there has to be, sometimes you have to tell someone, hey, you need to shape up, all right? And you've got to do this, and, and I'm going to tell you that in my position of authority or something like that. Um, thankfully, I don't have to do that a lot here. Uh, I've had on occasion to tell somebody we're not going to do that, and that's the way it's going to be, you know, be based on Scripture, not based on Jack Karen, but hopefully not anyways. Um, and, but, but those things do come up. Here, Paul is sort of doing that, and he says, it's your fault that I have to do it. Uh, wow, that's, that's hard. And then he goes on to say this, uh, truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished, accomplished among you with all perseverance. Uh, when he was there, it was quite a struggle. Uh, it was there in Acts 18 that it's recorded that Christ appeared to him in a night, remember, telling him to fear not. Uh, for he still had many people in this city, it, and, and there were many, many more to be reached. And there's Paul in fear in the middle of the night, and he's persevering. But beyond that, and what we don't have a lot of record of, is these other things. He says, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, I think that's interesting because we do not have in the New Testament... A lot of, as far as the apostolic age, a lot of records of signs and wonders and miracles and those kind of things that were wrought by the hands of the apostles. Uh, ultimately, it was the Lord confirming that they were apostles. But we have instead more of an emphasis on the message of the apostles. And it's funny, I think that um, there's an error in among Christians when they get away from the message and they look for the miracle, Okay or the signs and the wonders. And there's lots of people out there that would like to do that. They, they're always seeking for some new sign and wonder and some new miracle. And God is still a, a miracle-making God. He is still someone that can bring signs and wonders. He can do that. But he, his final message, according to the book of Hebrews, is, is wrapped up in his son, right? It says, God who spoke in times past, right, in sundry times and in diverse manners, spoke, hath spoken in his son, right, in these last days. I'm paraphrasing that. But that's how God has spoken. When Paul was putting forth his work in Corinth and other places, God confirmed that indeed he was an apostle by the signs and wonders that he was able to do. And those were for the confirmation of that. By the way, there were always Jews involved in that time as well. It seems like, anyways, in the instances in Scripture where we see, um, in this case, in Corinth, remember, 
he starts in the synagogue. And it, the Bible says that the Jews required a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Both erred in that they put all their things in wisdom and all their things in signs and instead of Christ. Okay, And when Paul comes, his message is one of Christ. But the Jews required that. And I do think many of the signs that were demonstrated in that age were signs to the Jew. And also Jesus warns of that. By the way, he says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Um, and, that, and that's probably true. We're much more apt, and Corinth is a great example of this, because later in this he actually reproves them for their sin that was still there. And there was some that had been dealt with, but there was still sin that was in the camp, in the church. And people too often are caught up in chasing after signs and not dealing with their sin. It's easier to kind of put one stamp on say, I must be holy, I must be spiritual because God is doing this great, wonderful work and not dealing with the real problem, which is our sin in that. And there are lots of instances where that occurred in the scripture. There are some, you know, where it mentions those things, but it doesn't go into great detail what those were. We do know there were miracles that Paul uh, had and saw, and people sought him in in cases of that sometimes. Um, But he says, for what is it in which you were inferior to other churches? He's being, again, sarcastic, and he's saying, you must have been inferior in other churches because when I was among you, I wasn't a burden to you. And what he's telling them straightforward is that when he was there, he wasn't there to get their money. He wasn't there to get their gain or popularity or any of that stuff. And he proved that in that he labored night and day among them, and he did so. He did that in Ephesus as well. Uh, we know in Corinth, he joins uh, Ananias uh, and I'm not um, Aquila and Priscilla, and he's there by trade. They were tent makers. And so he's tent making, all right? He's working hard by the sweat of his brow. He's not in the synagogue saying, pass the, pass the plate and I'll teach you a little bit more. He could have done that. He, he says that those who, who preach the gospel have the right to live off the gospel. That, that's part of it. And the, and the Old Testament principle is don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, right? Sometimes I think about that and, you know, God can take an ox and, you know, he uses a great example of an ox. But that's much of the plotting of the ministry, by the way, it is. Sometimes it's just getting up and going down the same row, turning around, you go down the same row, it looks just like that one, and back and back and back. I say to my wife, sometimes I feel like I'm on a treadmill when we have maybe three messages a week I have to prepare and those kind of things. And in the process of that, I get saying, well, Lord, that's what you want us to do. And uh, I don't want to be discouraged in that because, and I'm thankful every now and again, like the last couple of weeks, I've had people that were able to fill in a little bit as I had other things. But I look at that and Paul, no doubt, uh, came there and, and he was not a burden to them. Sometimes we can be burdensome, can't we? And then he says, forgive me this wrong. Well, there was no wrong to forgive. So that's why I say he's being... Uh, hyperbolic right exaggerating something in that way that is not there there was no wrong and he goes on to uh, to to talk more about that anyways 
There are several instances in Scripture where it mentions there were signs. Acts 14.3, it says this, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. And look what it says next, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So you have in that age or that time, great uh, the word of his grace, that's the message, right? And then you have the signs on the other side that confirmed the messenger and the message. And I believe that's why God did that and why maybe in those days there were many more of those signs and wonders and things now that we have the completed word of God. Romans fifteen eighteen says the same thing, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And in that, in Romans, there were many things that he did, Paul did, um, in word and in deed. And the ultimate goal was to make the Gentiles obedient. Say, obedient to what? Obedient to the gospel. Obedient to the word of God. Obedient to God. By the way, and I throw this out every now and again to prod some of those that believe man doesn't really have a will that only you know god determines whether we will choose him or not you cannot be obedient unless you also can be disobedient and i do believe it's possible to resist god and to turn against his will man is born that way we're bent that way and we need to be brought into obedience to him how is that done through the spirit of god and through the word of god The book of Romans is filled with that, by the way. <clears throat> Hebrews. And I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I can't say that absolutely dogmatically because his name's not on it. But um, I will say it's very Pauline. And in spite of that, it's, it's also someone who would have been very familiar with Judaism to a point where he, he knows in, you know, very detailed stuff that is... Um, I can't say that, you know, certainly Peter could have had that, others, but um, often very Pauline. And if so, Hebrews chapter 2 also talks about signs and wonders. It says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And I point out too, disobedience implies it can be an obedience. What's that obedience? Salvation. All right. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, and the hymn is in italics. That means it's those who heard. And I would say, does Paul meet that criteria? Yes, he does. He was on the road to Damascus when he heard the voice of the Lord speaking in the Hebrew tongue. It said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, he says. And he heard, he, he says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. He heard the Lord directly. That was a qualifier to be an apostle, by the way. Um, because that is, uh, when you look at the apostleship as they mention themselves in Scripture, the various apostles, you have that as seemingly a qualifier. They had to have heard Christ. 
had a commission directly from him. And I think that there were apostles, and I don't necessarily think that there are supposed to be apostles today, all right? There are people that carry around that, that title as an apostle. Maybe they're like an apostle, uh, but uh, I, I think that that is something that they had to have had a direct commission by Christ and chosen by him. Anyways, uh, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, okay, and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And again, it's according to his will. Um, and more could be said all about that. But again, message and the miracles. You see both used, and that was the emphasis. Well, Paul goes on to give them this or tell them about the lack of commendation they should have been actually saying to about paul we're a blessed church we had an apostle with us for 18 months all right i mean think about that people would be very happy to boast about that maybe but they didn't they didn't recognize what they had among them and that isn't out of character for what people do with jesus far greater person to be under in ministry and to tea or have having been taught from would be jesus right uh, and yet jesus says of his own people uh, they did not know in the day of their visitation didn't know him in the day of their visitation they didn't know who he was many did come to faith in christ but afterwards right all right, moving on. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. And then he says this. Now for the third time, I am ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. And what he's saying there, I'm not coming to take something from you. I'm coming because of you. That's a demonstration of his love. And I find that great with Paul, because he can't go too long shaming them without saying, I love you. You know, I remember growing up, and there were times that my dad, uh, especially dad, you know, he would say something like, uh, I don't know, he'd, he'd uh, do a little, he wasn't terrible at it, but he would, he would shame me in something when I did something dumb, and it was because he wanted me to learn. And I always knew dad did that, not just to goad me or to, to make me sad. Sometimes it made me sad, but it was so that it would provoke a better me, right? And I was his son, and I know he loved me. And I, looking back especially, I see that. And it's easy just to shame people and leave it there. But my dad in particular especially, he was one that, that always made sure he put into me as well. You know, encouraging me more in that way. Paul seems to do the same thing. Um, and, and I think the best kind of leaders know how to do that. And not to a point where, for instance, like when Paul talks about children... And he, uh, uh, not to provoke them to, to anger, to wrath, right, of, of your children. That's not what you want. But to provoke people to love. That's really ultimately what we want. And I think in the military, the times of staying in the fight, there were times where uh, somebody, a, a sergeant or someone above me, would tell me, hey, you know, smarten up. Don't be an idiot, you know, something like that. They'd sometimes say it a little more flowerful words than that. Uh, but it wasn't because they just wanted to make my life miserable. I thought at the time maybe they did, but it was because we had a mission. It was a big mission, and we need to get in line. We need to get in step. We need to move. we got to do what we have to do if we're going to win. 
And Paul's doing this for that purpose. He goes on to say this for, And I will not be burdensome to you, and I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. That's a very, um, well, it's a principle found in our world today, but a very Jewish principle. Uh, to the Jews especially, they were big on making sure that they were to leave an inheritance to their children or leads, leave something to the next generation. It might not be money, right? It might be some other thing. Uh, but anyways, that's the way it should be. Paul looked at his ministry as not one of going and saying, here I am, now give to me. He wanted to give to them. And ministry is about giving a lot. It really is. Sometimes it's a lot of a giving that doesn't get anything back. Um, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just a blessing to be part of that. I have said that over and over again that sometimes God gives you his field to minister in or to work in and he blesses you with the fruit of that in ways, uh, not just material things, but just just the people. And we have been rich in the ministry of now approaching, uh, well, we're 28 years we've been married and I was preaching a year or so before that. But I think of the amount of times and places we have been and uh, God has just richly blessed us with people we've known. Some now with the Lord, uh, many that aren't with the Lord, they're here still. And I just say, God, you are so good. And if anything of just toiling in this earth in ministry has taught me is that I'm blessed because of the people I've had and seen and been with and friends are, you know, friends with. And it's, it's a blessing. Paul reminds him of that. We're to give back. And I will gladly spend to be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I'm loved. That's, that's sad when Paul says that. His heart is that he loved them. He would spend his life gladly for their souls. Yet, it doesn't seem that they appreciated him. And he goes on to say this. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. And what he was saying this, he came with the gospel, and he's, again, sort of, you know, it sounds like he did something deceitful, but that's not what he did. His craftiness was public. It was open. And it was the proclamation of the gospel. He didn't come with great, you know, fanfare. Um, he, he came not to be a burden, and they saw the work of God in their life and the transformation of God. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? The answer is no. I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Uh, I'll, I'll say this. Amos three three says, um, "How can two be agreed, or how can two walk together except they be agreed?" Right. The Titus and the brother. We don't know who that was. It could be many different uh, people, but it, it was a brother that went with Titus. Um, they walked in the same steps Paul walked. That means they were on the same sheet of music. Right. They were in the same doctrinal uh, belief system they believed these things and they had the same pattern that paul had that's what that means 
And they did the same thing Paul did. They walked those same places spiritually and probably physically. He commends them for that. They were blessed for that. And yet they were not thankful. (laughs) Not thankful. Warren Wiersbe in his notes says, One of the dangers of the Christian life is that, that of getting accustomed to our blessings. And I read that and I highlighted it in his commentary and I, I said, Lord, that can be me. Woe to me, who sometimes and often, I should say, I become accustomed to the blessings of God. And it can lead us to not appreciate God or those that have invested in our lives that sometimes are so obvious that we forget them, right? Uh I remember when I came home from, I graduated from MBBI, 1993. That next Sunday, I was speaking at my home church in Eagle Lake. And I looked at the people there at the church, and I told them about graduating and all happy. And I, my mom and dad were sitting in the back. And I thanked a whole bunch of people for helping put me through MBBI. And they did. Some, some gave financially. Some wrote letters of encouragement. Some asked me how I was doing, kept me accountable. All those kind of things. And I forgot to mention my parents. And after church, one of the people there said, you should have mentioned your parents, you know. And I thought, oh, no. Yeah, I should have. I felt that this high, you know. And I went home, and I'm having lunch, and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, but I forgot to mention you guys. You know, it wasn't intentional. I, I, they, they invested greatly in my life <laughs> from giving me life in the beginning all the way through those years. And they were there. Even as new Christians, they were there. And I said, how is I could forget my parents? Because we do. They're, they're familiar. They're people you're around. And we forget the blessings of having people around us that, that invest right in our lives let's not fall into the category of the lack of appreciation right for others and that lack of appreciation by the way can lead to worse consequences uh, romans 1 is that illustration for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. (laughs) Like, I'm sitting in a room with people and I forget my parents. They're right there, right? We, We can sit in a world that we have all the blessings of God and we don't even realize that he's still giving us blessings. How many people in our world woke up today and said, Thank you, Lord, for the air that I breathe. Or the expensive gaffes I had to put in my car, or whatever else, right? I mean, I mean, I still would. And I was thinking about this. I don't like paying what I'm paying at the pump by any means, and no, I know no one does. But it's still probably better than trying to push your truck or car or wherever to Presque Isle. You know, um, a little bit of gas goes a long ways. Even to, to talking about that, but anyways, we we just go less and less. But back to this, it's possible to miss the eternal God in a world because we're not thankful. It goes on to say, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Nor were thankful. And the mark of a, of a 
devolution, I say, you know, not evolving, but going away from God. We are going, if we go away from God as a people, as a person, individually, even believers can fall into this trap. We become unthankful. And when we become unthankful, our own minds, they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You can play the fool, and your heart can become dark, and it leads to all kinds of sin. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Boy, that could be the subtitle to the stories I see on the news every day. Some guy standing there, you know he's a male, he's dressed like a woman. He's probably the, one of the ugliest women you've ever seen, you know, if he's a woman. And he's saying, I'm a woman. And you go, no, you're not. You're a man trying to be a woman. And everybody goes, oh, he's any wise. God says he's a fool. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be hateful. I genuinely understand there are people that have some confused things in their mind and that's the result of living in a sin world a world filled with sin we all have that our foolish hearts become darkened our minds become darkened and we start calling evil good and good evil how can people celebrate infanticide right taking a baby and killing them and then celebrate that as good yet we have a whole bunch of people in our country right now doing that celebrating Not thankful for children. Not thankful for life. Why do you think people are killing each other in mass, mass shootings and things like that? Because they don't value life. They don't. They don't value it before birth, after birth, at the end of life, or in between. They don't value life. And that's because their foolish hearts were darkened by sin. We aren't wise. We're going further. And look, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Far easier to worship those kind of things than it is to the one true invisible God who is all-powerful and he's blessing us beyond measure and we don't think of him. Far easier. But it's wrong. And you know what happened in Corinth? The Judaizers came in and some of these people's minds were darkened and they didn't appreciate God and they began to play the fool. And by the way, that happens all the time. It happens in marriages. Some guy comes home and, you know, he looks at his wife who's been working hard all day and she doesn't look like that woman that he just left at work. And somehow he doesn't appreciate what he has and and, and he thinks about that one that he just left, all made up and all dolled up, ready for the world. And all of a sudden, he's with her. How many marriages have ended like that, right? Uh, a lot. And that's sad. And I'm not, it may have been, you know, part of your history. And I, I realize that. But I just say this, that why, and God can forgive and restore. And oh, amen, he does that all the time too. But why do we forget what we have, Right? Don't do that. Paul says this again. Do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ. But we do all things beloved for your edification. And that word beloved is a term of endearment. He loved them. In spite of the heartache. And in spite of the 
sin and those things. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you as such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions. You list these sins. Contentions. That's arguments. Uh, strife. And uh, listen, it's easy to get into a group of Christians and all of a sudden everybody's arguing. You can't even argue over the Bible. And I've had guys in front of me, and probably I've been near that time where people are, are so angry about the other person not believing what they believe, they're mad at each other. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that a great Bible study? And the guy over here doesn't know Christ, looks at that and goes, I don't want to be part of that. God's had to tame my tongue somewhat. Because as a new believer, and early on, even in my college days, man, I love to argue sometimes. I don't think I ever won anybody over by my arguing. I mean, hopefully they, they had something to think about. But what will win them over is as you lay out things systematically, you leave it for the Lord to do the convicting and the Holy Spirit, and you're gracious with your words, even if sometimes you have to be harsh. I mean, I have, I have done that, you know, it's the cults and those things, that, you know, people that come to your door and knock and all that, and, and sometimes I've been very pointed with them. Um, but I also remember there's a soul in front of me, someone who's lost and they're deceived and they don't even know they've been deceived. You wouldn't be deceived if you knew it, right? And they need to know the truth. Contentions. Jealousies. Jealousies. Why does that guy get to teach Sunday school and I don't? You think those kind of conversations have gone on before? Probably. Why is that person a deacon? Why is this that guy the pastor? Why is it, you know, it's a good question sometimes, right? But jealousies. Jealousies. Why is this? Why is that? We look to someone else and we want that. Or we think we should be in that place. Um, outbursts of wrath. Seen those? Unfortunately. I, and I will say, since we've been here eight years now, I've never had a contentious deacons meeting or any of those. And I'm thankful. I am so thankful. But I have sat on board meetings before, other places, where all of a sudden someone has an outburst of anger. And it's usually seated in some sin. And I mean that. And that can destroy a work. Selfish ambitions. Selfish ambitions. Uh, if you're in, in the ministry, Paul's talking to them. If you're in Christianity in general, in the church, because you think you can get something out of this for yourself as in selfish ambition, this is a stepping stone to my next move in my career. In the wrong line of work. First of all, it's not work. And there are people that no doubt join churches because it's being a certain, there's like expectation in the community that if you're in that church, you know you're part of the in crowd. There were probably people in Corinth doing that. Selfish ambitions. Backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Those are things that are the product of those, those previous ones, Right? That can happen. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, 
lewdness, which they have practiced. And you know, Paul dealt with that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. He deals with some pretty harsh sin. And he does so rebuking the people that were involved in the immorality that was going on, the, the disputes, the taking each other to court, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm always amazed that, you know, we can, in, in churches, and Corinth is an example, that things can come get really bad. But it's still the answer is to repent. That's what he says, right? He, he encourages them to repent. He's fearful that when he comes, there's some that won't have repented. And if you live in a, or you're in a, a church where people aren't repenting of those things, whether they're great sin or little sin, it festers in the background. And I sometimes think about that. I think, Lord, you know, what's in my life that needs to be dealt with before it boils over? Or in our church, right? And sometimes you have to have those serious conversations with people. And we say, you know, that's not honoring to the Lord. Or maybe you just need to repent of that. Sometimes I have to point myself and say, you need to repent of that. And we need that. We, we do. Constant, life, the Christian life is one of repentance. It really is. shouldn't be as that sin is always victorious over us. But we live in a sinful world and we are sinners, yet saved by the grace of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit if we'll yield to him. If we won't, your sin will have its way. And as you do so, it should be a life of repentance. If not, it can lead to some pretty harsh things. You know, if you, if you don't think so, I can point back to April 27th of 2003 in our neck of the woods, just less than an hour away in New Sweden, at the Gustav Adolf Lutheran Church. On that Sunday morning, a group of Christians gathered, and as they did every Sunday, sounds very similar to us, in between their Sunday school time and the church time, they had a coffee time. And they had some snacks that people brought in, and they were enjoying the coffee and the snacks, although the coffee tasted a little bitter that morning. Only to find out that one of the, the men in that fellowship had something against some other people in the fellowship and he wanted to upset their stomachs. That's what he wanted to do. And so he went into his barn, unbeknownst to them, he found some old pesticide that was inside a, a, a rusty old can and he went and he poured a little bit in the coffee when nobody was there. And it was arsenic. Matter of fact, he didn't, even, he didn't even realize that it was arsenic in there, according to what he said. Less than a week later, that man was dead by his own hand. He shot himself in the chest and, and died. Fifteen people got terribly sick out of that, and one person died. Another person has died since then, and there's been others that have had lifelong health ailments since that time. And that was the result of dispute the motive behind that, best they can piece that together, was that the man who perpetrated that great act, which went too far, he just he had said, I just wanted to get people sick. Well, it ended up killing somebody. This was a group that met together every week. They 
had taught Sunday school, some of the people, including this guy. And his family had donated a communion table. And the, I can't remember all the details what went on with it, but that communion table wasn't accepted by another group that was in the church, and it was still, I don't know, it wasn't appreciated, whatever happened. And that was why he was so upset. He festered, and he did that. And unfortunately, people died in that. It's known as one of the worst mass poisonings in, in American history. <laughs> Isn't that something? You know, you Google mass poisonings, and that one is like right at the, near the top of the list on certain things uh, as far as intentional poisonings that went on. And that's right here in New Sweden, Maine, in Aroostook County. Thankfully, I, I have followed up with some of that. You know, after that, there were some things that were, had to be made right among the people that were there. And they actually became stronger out of that as a congregation. I, I don't know where they are today. I've never been there to that church and all that. And I don't want to speak ill of them. But I say that because you never know how far someone can take something when they're, when they're not following the Lord. And in this case, that, that man, uh, he had something in his heart that needed to be repented of. And instead, it was acted out on. I hope that never something like that would occur here or wherever else. But I do know this, wherever people are, there's always you know, the, the possibility of not yielding to the Lord. And I want us to do that for sure. Paul reminds us of that. Um, and then he continues. And the next time we'll look at the warning. He warns them. And then he encourages them too. And leaves on a high note. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we even now would just pray that we would commit our ways to the Lord. We would not be easily offended or upset at things that are not important. Help us to keep short accounts with one another and most importantly with you. And Lord, I pray that we might yield ourselves spiritual members in the body of Christ and be to the glory of Christ in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.